0: not you stand with me as we give our attention to the reading of God's holy word? Hear God's word as we find it in Psalm 126. This is a song of ascents. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great, for, great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Thus far the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing as we study it together this evening. You may be seated. One of my greatest joys in pastoral ministry is the opportunity that I get every so often to sit with new members who are joining our church and to conduct membership interviews. And it might be that, that the new members are teenagers that I've known for a while and they're confessing their faith for the first time. It may be somebody new to the church, but they've been a Christian longer than I've been alive. But I always love to sit with God's people and to hear their stories of, of the way that God has called them to faith, the way that he continues to work in their lives. I love to hear their testimony of God's work, the things he's done, the things they're trusting him for. If you've been or you remember being in one of those meetings with me, you know that all of those meetings begin with those same two questions. I turn to the folks who are sitting before me and I ask them, well, tell us, tell the elders who are gathered together uh, what the Lord has done to call you to faith in himself and then go on and tell us where the Lord is still working in your life now. And I, I, didn't, I didn't come up with those questions. They're, they're inherited, really. I, I open uh, membership interviews the same way that Pastor McGuire opened them before me. I learned them from him and maybe... Maybe he learned those questions from somebody else before him. But the, the beauty of these questions is not that I came up with them. <laughs> not that they're unique or, or special to Redeemer. The beauty of those two questions in particular is that they encapsulate the experience of everyone who has ever been a Christian. Well, that's because as soon as we begin to trust in Christ, as soon as we begin to walk with Jesus, we begin to walk through what is known as the already and the not yet of the gospel. Stuck in the in-between, as as we look back in a sense to see what the Lord has already done for us. We look back to Christ and what what God has done through him, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law. As we walk with Christ, we look back to, to his cross and to his tomb and to his empty grave. We look back to the circumstances in our own lives that the Holy Spirit has used to to convict us of our sin and to draw us to faith, we look back to the time when our own sins were forgiven. We look back to to the time that our souls first began to sing for joy in Christ. Much of our walk with Jesus is is looking in the rearview mirror, as it were, to remember what God has done for us. But he also has us, the Lord has us walking with him and looking forward to what he will still do so we walk with the Lord, uh, looking to his promises, and he teaches us to walk in prayer. He teaches us to walk in reliance on him. We learn by experience that the Lord can be trusted with our indwelling sins. That he's the one who can be trusted with all those terrors that threaten to steal our sleep. To change the metaphor, perhaps, besides uh, looking back and looking forward, we walk with Jesus through our walk of faith the same way that the Israelites walked through the Red Sea. They walked with a wall of protection on the right hand and a wall of protection on their left. And in our lives, those walls have a name. One is called what the Lord has done, and the other is called what the Lord will still do for his people. And so as we walk with him, we're always looking in these two directions. We're always in the middle between these two things. And in Psalm 126, we are in the middle of those two walls. You notice verse 1 proclaims without qualification, the Lord has restored the fortunes of Zion. He's done a wonderful thing, a deliverance so great that his people pinched themselves just to prove that they were awake. He has done something. It has been accomplished. And then you notice in verse 4, the cry comes again, restore our fortunes, O Lord. We wonder which is it. Has the Lord worked for his people or is there still more to do? The answer is yes. The answer is always yes for God's people because those two statements are always true. The God who has worked is still working. The God who began a good work in you will carry it to completion at the day of Christ. And So today in Psalm 126, I want to walk with you through the middle. I want to walk with you as we look at God's deliverance as we consider the confidence that we have in our Lord. Those are our two points today. Dividing the psalm right in half, uh, first looking at God's great deliverance, and secondly considering our great confidence in Him. We begin looking at God's great deliverance and, and verse 1 again. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. There's some debate here what fortunes we're talking about in this passage. And depending on your translation, uh, not necessarily just if it's old or if it's new, but depending on your translation, you might read a different word there. It might say, uh, when the Lord restored the captives or the captivity of Zion. For a very long time, the prevailing view was that this psalm was written about the return of the captives from Babylon back to the promised land in the 6th century B.C., and that's actually a pretty good guess. <laughs> and it's still a good translation. So if you have one of those, it's okay. But the, the only problem with that term there, fortunes, and it shows up in slightly different forms in verse 1 and verse 4, but it's essentially the same word. Uh, the only problem with taking it that way is that it's, it's a little bit broader than just captives. It could mean those who were held in a place and then released. It could also simply mean future prospects. And so it's the same word that shows up in the book of Job, to talk about Job at the end of his trial, when the Lord pays him back double, all that he had before, everything that he had lost, the Lord pays back. And it says in Job chapter 42, verse 10, the Lord restored the fortunes of Job. Now, well, Between those two, between how it's used of Job and how it's used here, perhaps, of Babylon, I think we get a pretty good understanding of what exactly this means for the Lord to to turn, to restore the fortunes of his people. The psalm is talking about an act of God that gives a future to people who have no future. No outlet. No prospects. The Lord steps in. It is a divine reversal where the Lord repays all the years that the locust has eaten. It's a deliverance that's so sudden and so miraculous that it leaves the unmistakable imprint of the hand of God upon the lives of his people. And that's exactly how it was in 539 when Cyrus conquered Babylon and he declared that the Jews were free to return home. For 60 years, the people had been praying for just that release. And the Lord had promised it. He had had prophesied by name. More than a hundred years before, the king who would make that declaration and let them go home. The Lord declared that the pain of his people in a foreign land would only ever be temporary, and God's people knew his promises. But they also knew the probability. They knew that no nation in the history of the world had ever gone into exile and lived to tell about it. Exile almost always, at least up until this point, always ended in some mixture of genocide and slavery and, and, and cultural assimilation. And if you survived the deportation, you began to be conscripted to, to serve in another kingdom, to serve other people and their needs and their whims until your language and your religion and your national hope simply evaporated. No nation had ever returned from exile. It had never happened before. And yet somehow, suddenly, it came true. You have had dreams that were so vivid that you woke up and you struggled to, to decide whether they were real or not. This was a reality that was so miraculous that people couldn't tell if perhaps they were still dreaming. Nothing like this had happened before, but now the Lord had done it all. That's the point of those first three verses, by the way. The Lord is everywhere. Yes, Cyrus was there, and Cyrus issued a decree, and yes, Zerubbabel, he, he led the march, and yes, 42,000 Israelite men led their families back home in the first wave, and there were human hands involved in every step of it, but behind it and before it and, and underneath Every inch of the journey from Babylon back to the promised land, it was the Lord who was at work. The Lord restored the fortunes of Zion. The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, his people cry out. It was the unmistakable power of God. Our God often works that way. He often saves his people in such a way that we have no choice but to acknowledge that he has done what we could not do for ourselves. It's the story of your salvation. When you were dead in your sins, says Paul, God made you alive in Christ Jesus. And then the New Testament goes on to speak of, of coming to believe in Jesus Christ in terms of a, a kingdom transfer. Colossians chapter 1, He delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. Ephesians chapter 2, God took Gentiles who were separated from Christ, alienated from the promises and the covenant, without hope, without God in the world. He did what they could not do. He he made us, says Paul. Ephesians chapter 2, fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God. And do you remember the joy of first believing that God had done that for you? John Bunyan has a description of it in his allegory. He says, I saw in my dream that just as Christian came up with the cross, his burden loosed from off his shoulders and fell from off his back and began to tumble. And so continued to do until it came to the mouth of the tomb where it fell in and I saw it no more. Then was Christian glad and lightsome and said with a merry heart, He hath given me rest by his sorrow and life by his death. And then he stood a while to look and to wonder, for it was very surprising to him that the sight of the cross should thus ease him of his burden. He looked, therefore, and looked again, even till the springs that were in his head sent the water down his cheeks. remember that first joy when your mouth was filled with laughter and your tongue with shouts of praise because the Lord had done for you what you could never do for yourself. The Lord is in the business of doing that. He makes a way where there is no way. He, He turns the most desperate situations into salvation stories. And if the Lord has done that for you, he's done it for some very good reasons. We find that in in the psalm. The Lord has done that. If he's saved you, if he's done this deliverance in your life, he's done it, one, to to get rejoicing from your lips. Verse 2, then our mouth was filled with laughter, our tongue with shouts of joy. Do you ever think about what it is that makes us laugh? Why we find some things funny? It's kind of a dangerous question. Uh, a joke uh, is a little bit like a frog, and you can't dissect it without killing it in the process. But when comedians, when, when people begin to dissect humor, why it is that we laugh at all, it almost always has something to do with the element of the unexpected. It's a little bit of a surprise. It's the last thing you expect. And in, in the context, it, it seems almost absurd, and it, and it catches you off guard. Well, the return of the captives was like that. And so is your salvation. I bet it was that way, whether it, it really caught you off guard or, or whether you sort of eased into it like you do into a pool that's a bit too cold. Whether you saw it coming a long way off the entire time you were, you were being raised in, in a household where your parents taught you the gospel and you saw it coming and, and one day you looked back and you realized, wow, I should have expected that, but somehow I didn't. And somehow it's more wonderful than than I thought. The Lord loves to take us by surprise. He loves to fill us with joy and with laughter in what he alone is capable of. He does it to put praise on our lips, to get rejoicing from his people. He also does it to get recognition from the nations. Don't you love it when God works in the lives of his people, and even the unbelievers sit up and take notice? Don't you love when God has a way in the lives of his children that, that even those who do not believe in him can't, can't help but feel attracted to what's happening over there, to what the Lord is doing somehow in their life, in your life? Maybe there's a woman, and she's in your neighborhood. You've had friendly conversations with her, neighborly conversations with her for 15 years. Your kids have have grown up together. It seems maybe every other week you stop and you talk and, and you've had opportunities to witness to Christ over those years, time and time again, but it never really sunk in. And then finally you notice that that her mother is getting older. She's dealing with dementia and she's she's bringing her into her home. She's going to be long begin that that long ministry of caring for the woman who cared for her. And when the difficulty of it all gets to be too much, she remembers that you did the same thing for your mother not too long ago. You brought her into your home, and you you gave four and a half years of your life trying to help her maintain her dignity, trying to make sure that she was cared for. And it wasn't always easy, and sometimes... It was exhausting, and sometimes you felt angry, or you felt guilty, or you felt plain tired, but now your neighbor remembers something of the conversations that you had back then and how you were always saying that the Lord was strengthening you and giving you compassion and making you kind toward your mother, and in her worldview, she didn't even have a category for that sort of thing. But now she's stepping into that same ministry that you had, and she's... Beginning to realize, well, maybe this is what she's been talking about all along. And then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. And we can only agree. The Lord has done great things for us. Not us, not we. Not we ourselves, for ourselves. The Lord has done great things for us. We can only agree and we can only rejoice and be glad the great things the Lord has done, glad at the deliverance that makes his power unmistakable. And the Lord works this great deliverance to get glory for himself. He also does it to give us confidence. This is our second point, beginning in verse 4. You've already noticed, we've pointed out the tension between verse 1 and verse 4. The psalm is asking the Lord to do again what it appears he's already done, to restore the fortunes of his people like streams in the Negev. Again, this language, this request, is probably a little bit broader than just Babylon, but that actually gives us a pretty good idea uh, of, of the ongoing needs of God's people. We Consider the return of the exiles from Babylon. Remember that it happened in fits and starts over a period of more than 100 years, actually. It wasn't like snapping your fingers and being done. It wasn't like hopping on a a maglev train somewhere and going at bullet speeds to another town and setting up a new residence and saying, wasn't that wonderful and wasn't it easy and your pod arrives on the doorstep and you have the movers. No, it wasn't like that. It was this long, arduous process where the Lord had restored the fortunes of his people, but he was still restoring them. It was still going on. They still had their daily needs. Remember that when the people first came back, they began to build the temple all over again. They laid the foundations. The ones who were there who had seen the temple previously began to weep. It tells us in Ezra that, that for a long way off, all you could hear was a commotion, and you couldn't tell whether it was weeping or whether it was rejoicing because it was all mingled together, and maybe it was because it was so small compared to the first. Maybe it was just the pain of knowing what they had lost, but it opened wounds all over again. And the Lord had restored his for, the fortunes of his people, but they were still in need. And as they rebuilt the temple over the course of 20 years, the prophet Haggai took the people to task. They'd been focusing on their own homes. They had left God's house to languish. It was still another 60 years before Nehemiah returned to rebuild the city walls to give the people some semblance of security in the land of promise. And then behind it all was, was still the shame of the spiritual filth that had polluted their hearts and led them into exile in the first place. And maybe they had returned, but their hearts were still, like the prodigal son, away and off in a far country. Their fortunes had returned. The captives were restored, but God's people still faced the daily needs people longing for home. And so when they cry to the Lord in verse 4, they're asking God to fulfill, to bring to completion, the deliverance he had already begun for them. They're asking the Lord not to leave any of his promises undone, to carry to completion the good work that he began in them. Death Valley in California is one of the hottest, most unforgiving, driest places in the world. It feels hot outside in Massachusetts right now, but the average temperature in July, the average high temperature in Death Valley is 116 degrees. it's a dry heat. It's still pretty hot, 116 degrees. In 1913, the highest ambient temperature ever recorded on the surface of the earth was recorded in Death Valley at 134 degrees Fahrenheit. It is a desert of deserts. Yet about every 10 years or so, when the conditions are just right, when, when they get a little bit more than the normal one and a half inches of rain that they get in an, in an average year, when the conditions are just right and they get a little bit more rainfall, Death Valley experiences what's known as a super bloom. And you can see pictures all over the internet. The last one happened in 2005. And it is when literally billions of wildflower seeds that have lain dormant in the earth for years, for a decade or more, suddenly sprout and blossom all at the same time. And the desert is filled from horizon to horizon with yellows and blues and orange blossoms. And the same thing happens in, in the Negev. Verse 4, like streams in the Negev, that's the the hot southern region in Palestine. And when the yearly rains in the mountains trickle down into the valley, into the desert, the wasteland becomes a paradise almost overnight. That's what this psalm is asking for. Oh Lord, do not let a single seed of your promise lie dormant in the earth. Bring forth abundance for your people. Do the work, complete the work that you've begun. Cause your grace and your mercy to blossom in the lives of your people. This is what the psalm is asking for. And it's not a prayer of desperation. This is a cry of confidence. The Lord has already done what nobody else could imagine. He was the one who brought the nation out of exile when no other nation had come out of exile. The Lord is the one who is able to bring waters into the dry riverbeds and turn the wasteland into a paradise. The Lord is able. He's the one who can be trusted to work salvation to its fullness. That's why the closing verses are full of the language of assurance. Read them again. Verse 5. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. It's another one of of Scripture's agricultural metaphors for the spiritual life. It's another encouragement to God's people to look forward to what the Lord is able to do, to tell us that, that all the pain of planting can't be compared with the joy of the harvest. But if you know anything about farming, you know that a harvest is never guaranteed. There's a lot that can happen between the time that you put the seed in the ground and the time that you put the food on the table. And there's flood, and there's blight, and there's mildew, and there are worms and bugs, and there are weeds, and there's just bad crops. Almost anything can go wrong in farming. That's why last year alone the U.S. government paid out $22 billion dollars taxpayer money, $22 billion worth of subsidies to American farmers just to compensate them for for environmental losses, for for economic upheaval, and you never heard about it. There was no debate on the floor. There was no bulletin in the news. That's just what happens, $22 billion, because that's what it takes to keep American farmers afloat sometimes. Almost anything can happen. The harvest is not guaranteed. And this psalm is written before the days of government subsidies. And so this image of a farmer going out to sow his field with tears in his eyes, it captures some of the anxiety of every family that had their own farm at the time. Because in order to go out at, at the time of sowing, at the time of planting, you had to take food stores from your own grain bins you had to take seed that you could have ground and turned into bread and fed to your children you have to take it out into the fields and throw it into the earth and hope something happens but you don't know that it will you hope that it will but it's never guaranteed I think this psalm is telling us that sometimes our prayers to the Lord can feel like that come to him with small, inconsequential things. Sometimes we do. But not in our moments of desperation. Not with tears in our eyes. We come to the Lord not for frivolous extras that we'd like him to supply. We come to him physically and spiritually and relationally asking for our very daily bread. Everything we need to survive in this world and to continue walking with him. We come to him with our sick kids. We come to him with our indwelling sin. We come to him with a marriage that's barely hanging on by its fingernails. We come to him with our uncertain future. We come to him with a thousand daily frustrations that make us just want to sack it all and just do something foolish and selfish and probably self-destructive. We bring the Lord all of our junk and all of our tears, and all of our sin, and we wonder if we'll ever again feel the joy of believing in Him at first. And this psalm is calling us to trust the Lord without reserve. Take those prayers and those tears and to bury them into the soil of God's promise, of His ability not wondering if maybe the lord might be able to do something but trusting in him trusting that with the lord this harvest is guaranteed we don't know the timeline and we don't know the particular outcome if it will it will end up in a harvest the way that we want it or the way that the lord has it better for us than we could imagine but we can trust the lord that he is able to turn our weeping Into joy. We can have great confidence in our God. But how can you know that? How can you trust that? How can you be sure that God will supply what you need to continue walking with Him? You know it the same way that Christians have always known it by standing in the middle. You know it if you're able to look back and and see that great deliverance that he has worked. You know if you can stand in the middle and look back to the cross and to the tomb and to the empty grave. You know that if you know that in Jesus Christ the Lord has worked a deliverance that you could never work for yourself. And if the Lord was willing to do that, to send his son and to carry your sin, to make you a part of his kingdom, And then you know you can trust him with everything else as well. Dear brothers and sisters, we can have great confidence in our God. And our confidence grows as we understand his deliverance for us. Won't you join me in prayer? Oh Lord, our God, we pray that you would show us more of Christ. Show us more of your gospel goodness. Show us more of your mercy. And when we are faltering, when we are tempted to stray, when we come to you with tears and a hopeless situation, may we rest on the gospel that you who did not spare your son but gave him up for us, you will surely give us all things needful in him as well. Lord, grow your people in faith and confidence in your delivering power. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.